nice park. Good afternoon, everybody. We are live. We are so excited to see you. We are live right now, and we are hoping that as we preach, you'll type in some questions, and we'll do our best to respond. Yes? So what we're going to do is share a little bit on Luke uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, which is the scheduled teaching for today. Um, but we'd also like to hear from you. We haven't done this in a while where you get to interact with all of you. So we do this. We, we can do, do this. we can do this. We yeah. can do this. That's uh, right. So the phone number there, uh, you can text your question. We're monitoring the text messages right now, as well as the comments on YouTube. So please make sure you take advantage of that and you can comment or question on um, the teaching from today. Or maybe you just have a random AMA, ask me anything kind of question. We're welcome. <laughs> Can we do that? You want to, are sure, you okay? Okay, sure. so we're, yeah, we'll do yeah, that yeah. as well. So there's that information. Okay. I'll take this down off the screen now. All right. Okay. Okay. So we are in our Luke series that we've been doing here at Spark, and we are in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 this afternoon. And so we're going to jump on in and then kind of pull the verse apart and have a bit of a conversation with all of us together on what these verses mean for understanding who Jesus is and the Jesus story and our grand narrative and how we live this out today. Yes? Cool. That's the plan. That's the plan. All right. <laughs> I'm so excited and nervous and excited. Okay. So Luke chapter eight verses. <laughs> Can I tell you that we already got like two text messages. Wait, you're really live? Yeah. Wait, really? Yes, we are really live. Yes. <laughs> there awesome. you go. Okay. So here we go. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Oh, dear. No, I can't see that. That's kidding. not going to help. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, you can read along. We're reading from the NRSV. I'm so sad we don't have slides that I can show you. So. Well, yeah, it's okay. We made the slides, but then we decided we wanted to do the live, and I think the live is cool. So let's just, we're cool. All right. All right. All right, somebody text us and say we're cool. Okay, here we go. So, soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. I think we want to stop right there and say, soon after what? So, if you'll remember, last week we told the story about the woman who anointed Jesus at the Pharisee's home. There was this beautiful meal, um, a Pharisee, a religious leader in Jesus's community. And again, we probably want to note that Jesus's theology is much aligned to Pharisee and very close with that. Um, so, if he had to put fit anywhere he would fit there. So he's at some religious leader's home and they're hanging out and chatting. And then this woman comes in and people perceive her or know her to be a sinner of having struggled in some way or another. And she just starts to weep in worship with Jesus and pours out her tears on Jesus and washes his feet with her tears and her hair and then points out pours out that anointing oil, whether myrrh or spikenard, depending upon the gospel that you read. Which Pastor Danielle did an amazing job last week. So sorry for all you distance sparkers, but last week with the sparking lot, for those of you who are able to show up, Pastor Danielle did a wonderful gift. Hopefully you still have those little vials of spikenard oil that is still wafting through your nose and through your home to remind you of this story. When we talked about how because she was forgiven much, Jesus tells this parable, she loves much. And that outpouring of that much love and how we get to experience that huge love from Jesus as well as give that love back to Jesus and to one another in response to all that's been given to us. So after that happened, Jesus then goes in through cities and villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And what is really neat about this is that when we talk about kingdom of God, when we talk about good news, gospel, good news, kingdom of God, we know at Spark, because we're very good Sparkers, we've talked about this a lot in a lot of different series that we've done. 
um, the Sew series and the... I have an announcement series I have an from announcement 2017, series. back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. Right. A long time ago, um, when we were all in the same room together at some point. It just feels um, like such a different world. We know that those phrases, the announcement of the good news, the gospel, and the kingdom of God, don't only mean, um, hey, here's how you get your golden ticket so that someday you get to heaven. But it also means that the inbreaking of the rule and the reign of God, things being made right in the world, is happening in the moment that Jesus is there and in the moment when these things happen. So when that woman was invited into that table fellowship, welcomed in um, and performed in her act massive hospitality, um, putting to shame the hospitality of the certainly more well-off person in the room, um, that was an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So we have that sort of little connecting verse here. Do you want to read the next verse then? Oh, the, the 12 were with him as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Keep going. Sure. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward Kutza or Kuza and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their resources. Okay, so that's the end of our reading today. This is what we're going to unpack. What does this mean? And one of the things I want to do first is just fix everybody's names. Just because they are anglicized through our translations, which is good because we're all speaking English. Um, but Mary wasn't called Mary. She was called Miriam. And Miriam is the sister of Moshe, Moses. And she's from a place called Migdal. And that's where her name comes from. So it's not like... Magdalene was her last name or that she was called that. This is the town that she's from. It's from the southwestern portion of the Sea of Galilee, western mid, mid, midpoint almost. And Migdal means tower in Hebrew. So this town, this little port town there, harbor town um, in Galilee was known for having a tower because they salted and pickled some fish there. They were, Migdal was known for great fish. So Mary, Miriam is from there. And Yeshua and the disciples or the Talmudim are going through and these women are there too. And one of them is Mary, Miriam from Migdal. And then Yohana, like John, Yohanan, but Yohana for the female version, Joanna, who's the wife of Herod's business manager, steward Kuza. And this is a crazy story. So let's unpack her for a few moments. I want you to imagine a, oh, I don't know, a political system where there's two parties and one party is against the other party, et cetera, et cetera. And let's say uh, one party has a candidate for president. The other party has a candidate for president. One of those parties happens to have a manager of the campaign and the wife of that manager is supporting the member of the other party. So that's what, <laughs> I just imagine something along those lines. So that... <laughs> <laughs> so that's one crazy level of that particular story to think about. This is Herod. This Jesus is speaking vehemently, explicitly against the king of the Jews, or as has been stated about Herod. Um, and so, like, this is not the same Herod that killed the babies. True. That was his dad. So none of the Herods are good. They're all like, boo, not good. Right. Right. So this Herod, though, is the Herod that killed Jesus's cousin, Yohanan, John. And so we have now a connection with Jesus and Herod's household 
through the wife of a business manager or steward there who is supporting Jesus's ministry out of her own means. So she has some means. She's more probably more um, upper class or aristocratic in some way and finds this Jesus movement deeply attractive and is part of that community as well. We also just want to really quick go back to Mary Magdalene, um, Miriam from Migdal. We have a story, we have a perception in our culture that she was a prostitute or that she had done all these things. Nowhere in the text does it say that. It says that she had seven demons and that's kind of something to unpack a little bit here too. That can mean she had uh, physical ailments or emotional spiritual ailments or something had happened and seven can mean like more of a complete number right yeah, yeah. so tom tom actually asked the question does the number seven for yes. the seven demons mean something uh the answer is yes remember seven in the biblical narrative all the way back to genesis and all the way through to revelation is a number of completeness or wholeness and so mm -hmm. one potential interpretation now there's all sorts of levels here uh what is a demon that's one of the questions that i think daniel was kind of uh, uh, referencing and you have to do some digging because what a demon is in greek philosophy is a little bit different from what a demon is in kind of American religious spirituality uh, as well as Hebrew thought and so you have to kind of do some digging to figure out what exactly did they mean by that and so whatever it is we know that one of the connotations is that there's an ailment whether that's a physical ailment a mental ailment something that is debilitating for the person and so if you use the number seven that may not actually be an accounting of an actual number right. of demons right. but that whatever ailment there happened to have been it was whole it, complete right. Right. all encompassing so that's we one the, level of interpretation we have in the book of acts the seven sons of skiva too right, right. like so there's like there you know there's other See the seven show up all over right right okay so great question thanks tom hopefully that answered your question um and so we've got miriam from migdal we've who had some massive healing experience with jesus and is now following jesus part of the crowd we have johanna Johanna, Joanna from Herod's business manager. And there's a really interesting possible connection with her and another woman named in the book of Acts and in, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 16. Do you want to take it? Um, I was looking at comments. You take it and then I'll catch up. With okay. You. All right. He's following with <laughs> your awesome I'm making sure questions. everybody's commenting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Joanna might be, and some scholars have suggested this, uh, Richard Bauckham, Ben Witherington, and others, she may be the woman named as Junia in the book of Romans chapter 16 that Paul says is an apostle in the Lord and was in the Lord before he was. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be uncommon for people to have like a Hebrew name and a Greco-Roman name, sort of like how people today have a name that is more connected to their birth origin culture and then a name that they use in the land that they're living in. So it is I mean, I think that Ben Witherington and Bauckham and others make a very strong argument that they believe that Junia listed there is this Joanna. Um, it's possible. It's really possible. They have some mm -hmm. linguistic things they do for the name. So it's kind of a fun thing. Definitely, she's amazing. There's, a, find out. I think, a couple really important things to point out. Junia in Romans 16 is named an apostle. An apostle is somebody who has been sent forth. A disciple is somebody who follows an apostle is somebody who is sent. 
So I used to teach at a high school and whenever there would be runners and messengers from the front office to the classroom bringing messages, I would joke around with my Bible class that the apostle has just arrived <laughs> because they were sent from the office to my classroom to deliver a note. So an apostle is somebody who Did is they sent. love that? Um, I don't, I don't remember. They're, they were high schoolers and I was a really, I had bad humor. Maybe so, some of them are listening. They could say that. They so, some, yeah. Some, some of my students are still listening. Uh, the fact that Joanna is listed here as well as women listed at the resurrection of Jesus makes that connection one of the driving pieces of evidence to suggest that the two may be the same person and to also indicate that women played the role of the apostle uh, and, and in fact played the first role of the apostles to after the apostles. to the apostles yeah. uh, after the resurrection. So uh, also there seems to be some evidence that Joanna and Junia were used interchangeably in the um, Judean Galilean experience and the Greco-Roman experience, right? I think that was we heard a cool talk yesterday from Ben Witherington. It's I thought that, that's that he your was mind uh, making mind. that connection. Okay, so Jesus's ministry is being supported by these women who have some means, and even from like benefiting from Herod's household, which is amazing because the kingdom of God is in direct defiance of Herod's kingdom that fox over there who's going to claim that he's going to crucify the king of the Jews, but in fact, through the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, will be enthroning um, the king of the Jews. So it's it's a pretty amazing irony that is present here in this passage. And then the next woman that is mentioned is Shoshana and many others who provided for them out of their own resources. So what does it mean that these women are showing up? It's like Jesus, this super progressive feminist, and he's just incredible. And everyone's like, no way. And I can't believe the women are there. But we don't have other places in the text that are screaming out, hey, that Jesus guy and the women. I can't believe he's hanging out with the women. Right. That doesn't he doesn't get that complaint. They complain about drunkard and a sinner and all these other things, but they don't complain necessarily about these women who are with him. But it wasn't common. It wasn't well known in either that culture in Judea and the Galilee or in the Greco-Roman world. It was actually quite distinct and different. Kevin's going to read you a quote in a few moments um, yeah. from Rodney Stark on how different that was and why it made this movement of Jesus, this way of Jesus, so deeply attractive as the movement went into the Greco-Roman world. Uh, this is from Rodney Stark's book, The Triumph of Christianity, page 136. The Rise of Christianity or The Triumph of Christianity? The Triumph oh. of Christianity. Um, per, uh, yeah, The Triumph. The Rise of Christianity depended upon women. In response to the special appeal that the faith had for women, the early church drew substantially more female than male converts, and this in a world where women were in short supply. Having, why were they in short supply? Because uh, if you remember back in that day, there was a practice called infant exposure, where if you birthed a child that you did not want to raise, you would expose them to the elements and ultimately killing them. And women were disproportionately, uh, girls were disproportionately exposed. And so uh, that's why women were in short supply. And, and also I would imagine that um childbirth was very risky. Yeah. And so many women were dying in childbirth. Yeah. We actually have some friends that are uh, watching now that uh, had there not been the advances of modern medicine, they too perhaps would have perished in, uh, in child, childbearing and giving birth. Having an excess of women gave the church a remarkable advantage because it resulted in disproportionate Christian fertility and in a, and in a considerable number of secondary conversions. Yeah, I think what we're saying is that 
the movement of Jesus was deeply attractive towards women. And also the Christians were the ones that went and found those babies that were exposed and then adopted those daughters and sons into their own families and into the kingdom. This might be some echoes that we have in Timothy and others, other places where we're adopted into the family of God. Christians were known, as were the Jews, known to bring those to highly value life and to bring those children in. So they were adopting girls often. Um, So Christianity and this early movement, even though Jesus's world um, and the worlds of this time period in the first century were patri, pat, what do I want to say? Pa- patriarchal. Patriarchal, patrilocal, and patrilineal. Um, because all of those worlds were that way and ordered that way, not that different from our world today, although different, um, or maybe not that different from our world not that long ago, um, we see that the Jesus movement has reordered things um, entirely, and it was very attractive to to women um, of the day. I think one of the pieces of the puzzle that many of us miss in the Jesus story is many of us are perhaps familiar with the Jesus movement being about the poor and about the marginalized. But these particular women are women of stature. They have means. They are in wealthy positions. They're perhaps even in an upper class. I mean, if you are the spouse of the manager of the king, the installed ruler of that particular land who's making a ton of money... (laughs) I, you were going to say something. <laughs> I was going to say uh, making a ton of money. Uh, you're in a different class. And um, one of the things that we wanted to point out or, or seems to be important to understand is that while many of us really believe that Jesus is for the poor and the marginalized, I think what is underneath the reason for that is that Jesus is actually for a disruption of all of the systems of social organization for the sake of a better humanity. So there are places in which there's gender disparity. Um, There's places where there's economic disparity. There's places where there's religious and political disparities. And so oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, Jesus was clearly political or Jesus was a feminist or or Jesus was uh, definitely for this. And all of those would be absolutely true. But one of the things that when you go through the scope and sequence of these gospel accounts, you start to see that there's, there's an underlying theme. What's the underlying foundation, the ground out of which all of that comes? is the Genesis story that we are all created in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, we all have equal value and equal worth. And so it's not just that Jesus is for the poor and down with the rich. Jesus is also recognizing, and these women are written into the story, as well as other people of means written into the story because they too need the redemption and the salvation of God. They too need the good news. Right. And the fact that they are there in the story that that Luke is concerned about women from the beginning to the end, the fact that all of that is present is actually, again, back to verse one of this chapter, evidence of that inbreaking and the declaration of the, the kingdom of God. It's not just that Jesus is saying it, it's that it is happening, happening for these women, happening for the people that are healed, happening for the Pharisee who's hosting the ho- the meal at his home and sees this woman invited 
on in. It's happening for every single one of these individuals as this declaration of this movement goes through. And we've talked about how, you know, this doesn't mean that because we're progressive, because we're feminist or because we're not or whatever it is that we want to latch onto these verses. What we see here, as Kevin mentioned, is that this is part of the overarching movement of God from Genesis, from that first creation of man and woman, um, from that, from the woman being created as an Ezra Kenegdo, um, someone, a help, or that help that we use, the, we use that word for God, that is equal to or opposite facing the man, so equal to in every respect, that that first, where everything is right before they eat the fruit, before the sneaky snake, that that kingdom, that rule and reign, that taste of Eden is what Jesus is bringing to bear over and over and over again. Um, and, and that's just super amazing and exciting. Um, I saw one question, um, which was, are all the women single? Well, no, Joanna isn't, right? She's married to Kuza, but there are some women that may likely be. And I think that there was more freedom found in their singlehood. Um, and Paul might seem to indicate something about that one in his verses on celibacy, which might not be so much about some sort of sexual purity, but the systems that, um, that in, you know, were at the day holding women back from different, different participations in the kingdom. So, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I mean, are the women single? Um, and, um, the 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 reflection of the entire scope of what the biblical narratives are, seem to be drawing american christians and american religious sensibilities and perspectives has a tendency to interpret most of these passages through the lens of morality which usually indicates some sort of sexual promiscuity or promiscuity permissions um, or purity. That seems to be right. a, a dominant lens that we have inherited. And it's something, I mean, I, when I was growing up in the church, I mean, there were, I think I joked about this before, there was only two things you needed to know. You know, you're supposed to love Jesus and don't have sex. That was like the entirety <laughs> of the, the message that I got from my, from my youth group. So because that is so prominent, it's hard to read all these marriage and single passages through a different light. What we're trying to do is get back into the historical context, because most of these passages, when it comes to marriage and singleness, have to do with the socioeconomic situation of the people that are involved. And that's what makes this message about Jesus so revolutionary, so right. amazing to consider how he advanced a different way of being human within the context of these social structures. I think your point actually is valid as to why when we say Mary Magdalene, everybody's like, oh, that's the lady that was definitely promiscuous. When it doesn't say that in our text, we've just assumed that because if a woman is said to be a sinner, um, then we're like, oh, that has to do with sex. But Peter's called a sinner, the greatest sinners before, and we don't presume that he's sleeping around. So it, it is really revealing much more of our interpretive lens or what we've been told is most valuable or concerning as we read through the text um, in our American 21st century experience. Okay. Why don't we sew it up a little bit? Yes, and then yes. there's some questions yes. uh, Pamela and, and Bob and Shelley have, have submitted that I think are so I think worthy. I think one of the questions that I saw pop through was, did this was this way of life easy or hard for the women? Was it something that was okay or were people fighting against it? And I think we'll see later on in the Gospel of Luke that as Mary sits at the feet of Jesus and Martha is concerned about many things, that that might not have so much to do um, with just busyness in the kitchen and shared tasks, but have to do more with the roles that people take on and how we break out of those roles. Um, so maybe there were some times when women were really coming up against it, but obviously the fact that these women 
women are there meant that it was possible. In my own personal experience, a long time ago when I first went to Israel um, in 2003, we were together and we were studying and, and following in this practice of trying to really understand first century discipleship and what it meant to follow a rabbi and all of that. And those first few days, I was the, there's about 40 of us, but I was the only woman um, at that time that was sort of throwing elbows to try to be up front with the guys. There were about four or five guys up at the front, and it was hard work. And I felt the first several days of that trip very much like I was having to prove myself constantly, that I was having to, like, I felt like they were not, they were deliberately closing me out of that space, that it was hard to get in. And so I just woke up one morning exhausted and asked the teacher um, over breakfast that morning, do you think it was harder for women? You know, these women are out there following Jesus. How I'm having a hard time now in 2004 at the time, like, was it harder for them too? And he said, yeah, I think that it was. Um, that there were barriers, physical barriers, as well as emotional barriers and communal, like societal barriers that were preventing women from full participation. Now, later on that day, we were hiking and I was feeling like it was just jet lag was setting in. It was hard to get up this big stinking hill. And I was up at the front, but feeling like the people behind me were being held back by me and that their own physical capability would have pushed them forward. So I pulled off to the side of the, the side of the road, the little path and said, OK, go on, go on, jump on up. And they said, no, no, no. And now all of a sudden, these guys that I'd been hiking with for four or five days, um, felt like I deserved to be there, like, we're not going without you. And so there was a very hard work at the beginning, but then through the experience of everyone, we all started to see, I think, our own prejudices or our own persistence like or lack thereof um, revealed a bit, and the, the community shifted and changed that day. Now, it took four days. And so I think that part of what my experience has been in the, in the Western church, and we've talked about this too here in America, is that our ideal for what leadership looks like in a church, for example, for many of us has been, um, you know, white surfer dude, male with cool khakis and a button down and able to play guitar, right? Um, and so we, I grew up, even though I wanted to be a pastor since I was 13, I grew up with the ideal that my gender actually, and I was told this, um, disqualified me or made me less than ideal for the role. And throughout different posts, um, I've had of ministerial posts, pastoral posts, I've had men make life more difficult, <laughs> and, uh, men and women, and I've had men and women make life better. Um, but ultimately, in order to create a community where we wanted to feel like we were trying to do our best to see the reflection of what Jesus is doing here, the way of Jesus and this in-breaking in, we started Spark um, in, in part because I felt called to be a senior pastor and I needed to start it in order for it to happen. Um, so these things are hard, but they happen. Um, and I think that's our kind of last question is, how does this change how we live? If you know this about who Jesus is, if you know this about what the kingdom of God looks like, um, that anyone who's marginalized gets to be brought in, that even those who are centered in most of our conversations need to also be set free. Um, if we know that, how does that change how we work, how we do church, what our neighborhoods like, what our households look like? Um, maybe we're in households where traditional gender roles are making life um, difficult. 
Maybe it's not. Um, maybe we're in spaces and times where we haven't yet examined our own questions about um, equality and how we bring these things to bear um, within our households, communities, offices, spaces, neighborhoods, etc. So we want to ask those questions. How are we living out the way of Jesus um, with regard to gender equality, with regard to um, racial equality and justice, with regard to all of all of that, um, economic um, disparities, all of that. When Omer talked a few weeks ago about um, centering disabled voices, how are we starting to live the way of Jesus and see those kingdom of God moments breaking through? I'd like to propose one potential way that just came to mind. This isn't the only way, but uh, a lot of us um, are involved in a socio-political uh, context right now where we are throwing rhetorical bombs at one another frequently. And one of our greatest pieces of ammunition happened to be Bible verses. People who are against women in leadership, and sometimes we get those emails, like you have a female pastor, you have female board members. What's that all about? Isn't that you know kind of a red flag? Um, we'll often throw in particular Bible verses and say, well, doesn't the Bible clearly say this? And therefore throws, um, and I shouldn't say that it's not always antagonistic, but offers that as, as the evidence for why we are being in violation, why we are in violation of the scriptures and stuff. I will tell you that I have been with other people who are on the other side of that particular argument and will use Luke chapter eight, the passage that we just read and studied to then throw back another rhetorical bomb. Well, clearly the Bible says this and um, Romans 16, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that I would like to challenge us to consider as the way of Jesus um, is to recognize that these segments, both the first Timothy passage in Romans 16 and all the other passages that might happen to be utilized as a rhetorical ammunition device to substantiate one's opinion and and view and hermeneutic interpretation, I don't see Jesus doing that fully and completely in the way that we do it. In what I see in the gospel uh, accounts is a full global vision of what Jesus was attempting to push forward. And the stories that we find in Luke chapter 8 and then chapter 7, chapter 6, etc. are examples of how Jesus is advancing the kingdom. And so part of the way to help have a conversation about this is not to just throw another verse. Because guess what? If you throw a verse, you're just participating in the exact same strategy. There's really nothing terribly different. And you're now getting the Bible to fight with one another. Perhaps we should ask a deeper question. What was fundamentally the agenda, the groundwork the fundamental essence of what Jesus was attempting to push forward. What was the global vision? And then ask the question, how does that global vision fit in with particular elements of our social organization? And that goes to politics and economics and gender and disability, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So that for consideration. Yeah. Okay, just really quickly, because we are running short on time, because this is what happens when you do something live with t- the two of us. Um, <laughs> Pamela asked, was there a risk? I think you uh, addressed Mm -hmm. the risk to being a follower. Were they independently wealthy and therefore had a higher level of freedom to follow such a radical movement? Most likely, yes. Um, That's part of it. They had some means. Yeah. And then Bob and Shally asked the question, do we know if these women are Jewish or Gentile? If Jewish, would they be a part of a particular group like Pharisees, etc.? Were were women allowed to be rabbis? So... 
They're Jewish. In 60 seconds. Um, <laughs> they're Jewish because their names are Jewish, is, is what we're, we're gathering. Um, and Jesus's movement tends to be an entirely Jewish movement for the most part, one or two Gentile experiences, but pretty much a Jewish movement of these Jewish followers up until um, Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and Peter, where Peter's like, where he's like, I, I've never hung out with Gentiles before. So it seems like for the first bit, um, this is predominantly a Jewish movement. We don't have any... Um, any indication that women were permitted to be rabbis or really many other places where we have stories of women following rabbis other than if their rabbi happened to be a spouse or their husband or a father. Um, however, we do know that in first century Galilee and Judea, when we find the synagogues, we see archeologically that the women were not separated from the men, that they were learning Torah and going to school alongside the boys as girls and then growing up. So yes, things were different. I'm not suggesting at all that first century Judea, Galilee, and the Jewish, first century Jewish experience was egalitarian. However, there are female leaders and um, what 67 BCE, before the time of Jesus, there was even a queen who ruled, a female leader of Judea, Queen Shlomsion, um, and she ruled, and she's amazing, and we can talk, Salome, she's referred to as Salome, so when we read in our Bible about Salome, they are, Salome is named after her, and she was really well respected and led, um, led Israel during that time, led Judea during that time to a huge level of prosperity and military peace. So, there were women in charge. It was not common, um, but it was not as rare. Like women were not treated in um, first century Israel, Judea, as they were in the Greco-Roman society, which was incredibly different and distinct than a Jewish ethic. I, don't, I hope that answered your question. It's great. Okay, questions. I think I, I know there's a couple more, but we'll just take Rajesh's question as the last one, just simply because of time. And everybody, please let us know if you appreciate this kind of format. We just gave it a try this uh, week, and we want to let you know. We want you to let us know if it was a benefit, if you liked it. There's all sorts of things, uh, feedback that would be helpful because we are here together as a community, as a family. We want to do this together. So, and, and we might be able to do something like this in the middle of the week rather than only on a Sunday too. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Um, Rajesh asks the question, was evangelism, converting folks, always part of Christianity? I see how evangelism, converting folks, has caused Christianity to be tribal. In other words, us versus them mentality. Uh, that is a complicated question, and the answer is yes and no. We have records. We have plenty of both Roman uh, and Christian records dating all the way back to the second and third centuries, uh, very, very early on of Christians being what we call, what they would have called apologists, that those are people that would have argued for the faith and the truth of the faith. And some of these arguments, they fall into two main categories, one of them being philosophical and the other one being kind of a living word, how you lived and behaved. The philosophical ones are very much like what we have today. Is there a God? Did Jesus did really die? Did he Was he raised from the dead, etc.? Um, but the reason why I answer yes and no is because there's a no side to it that the other apologetic that I found very uh, compelling, I think it was Tertullian who wrote in his apology, when you give an answer for how you live, it's because you are giving an answer for the hope that lives within you. It's not a philosophical argument for the truth of the dogma. It is a existential or an experiential or phenomenological answer to this is why I'm living this way. 
Let me tell you why we are inviting the marginalized in to the circles. Uh, let me tell you why the people that are thrown out to the garbage dumps are actually brought into our community and made to have leadership positions and potential in our community. So it's a defense of how they were lived. And I would say that there was conversion but we do see evidence, pretty significant evidence of conversion, not by philosophical argument, but by woo. And what I mean by woo is, come see how we live right. and how that changes and transforms everything and how that brings dignity and life and equality. And image and likeness of God, of the divine coming forth because you're now part of that community. Because that yeah. baby that was left on the garbage dump to die to the Christian and the Jew, yeah. And the Jew, well, they were right, all right, Jews, right? right? Was, is in the image and likeness of God and therefore has the dignity and value that every person does. We actually have a criticism from Pliny in the second century of these Christians. They have a woman as a deacon and that woman happens to be a slave and she's a leader in the church and he's kind of disgusted by it. That is a, a Roman... Uh, a Roman critic of the Christian movement. So anyway, that's the short answer to it. We have to quit because that's our service time. But again, please let us know if this was helpful and maybe we'll pick up something like this midweek and we'll get to some of those questions, etc. Uh, maybe at some we'll other time. We'll save them. And if we didn't get to them, we'll still work on answering them for you guys. We miss you all. And this was really fun. I loved seeing your faces and the questions that feels like we're together even when we're not. So to that end, and out of celebration of the fact that Jesus welcomes all and everyone at this table and into this movement and brings all of us together, let's take communion together. If you have your elements with you, you can get them and bring them forth. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table. So join us in communion as we move forward in that period of worship.